Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Royal Blue podcast where the three of us are still in our separate little isolation stations <laughs> stations across Merseyside. I'm your host Adam Jones today, joined by Dave Prentice and Chris Beasley. And despite being in isolation, there's still Everton news to talk about. We'll always find Everton news to talk about on this podcast. And uh, we'll start with an Everton legend making quite an interesting point. Uh, this morning, I think it was, uh, speaking to the Irish Independent, Graham Sharp has said leaves that the Premier League season should now just be null and void. Uh, Prenna, what are your thoughts? Do you, do you agree with the Everton ambassador? I don't. Um, and, you know, I totally, you know, Sharpie is a genuine bona fide Everton legend, 24 carat legend, and uh, it's very rare that I do disagree with him. Uh, but I suspect he's given this interview it just um, done a little bit of a kind of suspect it is going to be a very, very popular view, certainly on, you know, so one half of Merseyside. But morally, I, I just don't get it. I just think when you've got as far as we have into the season, I think you need to do what you can you know, to try and complete it. And that's even bearing in mind the uh, financial logistics. I know Sky, we've seen stories recently saying that Sky aren't going to enforce the 300 million or so. I think it is that, you know, so the clubs still owe them if the league can't be completed. But there are still you know, sort of some financial issues to investigate. But beyond all that, I just think morally, when you've got as far as you can into the league season, you need to do whatever you can to try and complete it. Uh, it's not like 1939-40, which is the last possible you know, scenario that is even vaguely reminiscent of this, uh, when there were only three matches played, and uh, when Everton were unbeaten, Tommy Lawton had scored in all three, and uh, defending the title, obviously the, uh, the championship was completely you know, so null and voided then, and they went into regional football. This is very different, and I think there is still a possibility that the league could be concluded Um Obviously, it won't be until at least we can see football starting again. But there is a time scale where that can be done and where the following season can be started, you know, so maybe in September. Uh, that can still logistically be done. So whilst that is still a possibility, I still think we have to investigate that. I know Sharpie said in his interview that uh, he doesn't really get playing behind closed doors. And I understand his reticence not to do that. You know, it's artificial football. It's anaesthetised football. But it is ball, so it is competitive. So I think you know we do need to try and investigate that. Obviously, if the uh, coronavirus pandemic doesn't peak, doesn't plateau, and we're still seeing figures rising by June, clearly then you do have to look at what he's saying. Maybe about null and voiding it. But until then, I think no. I think we do need to try and try and bring it to a conclusion as best we can. And, uh, you know, so while that is still a possibility, I, I would urge trying to do that rather than what Sharp is saying at the moment. Mm. I think B's prayer makes a good point there. Like, it, it does seem quite early to be talking about things like this, doesn't it? You know, with 
you know, we, we are still in April at the end of the day. And mm-hmm. I know with the situation as the country as a whole still stands, it doesn't mm. look to be uh, slowing down at any particular rate at all. But it does seem quite early to be talking about more and boys in the season when you can still run into the summer months. Yeah, I'm assuming what um, Graham says, because obviously we, we, we all were fortunate enough to know Graham and we know he's not the type of individual who will make shock jock type of comments or even the sort of remarks that are going to be deliberately inflammatory. He's not like that at all, but he genuinely feels that, that um, in the, these circumstances that football has to, to take a back seat. But like, as, as, as Dave has said, we are actually three quarters of the way through this season. It, it's very different. I mean, it would have been a, it would have been a real big call to make if the season had had to be stopped halfway through because Liverpool already had a massive lead at the top of the table halfway through. And if we still had half a season left to play, it could be very difficult to complete. I think given that we are three quarters of the way through, um, yeah, exercise caution and just wait until we can complete this season rather than thinking about seasons that even started. I mean, Gray mentions the fact that we're going to have to start the 2020-21 season. And, well, I think that's not even... We've not even kicked a ball with that. So I think let's get this season completed first because it's not just Liverpool's title we're on the line here. It's various European places, Champions League places, the relegation places, because that's the big one, because some teams are going to get off the hook and avoid relegation, and you're going to have some very disappointed teams at the top of the championship miss out. So, so many things that have to be completed. And given that it is only nine or ten, and I think some couple of teams have got ten games to go, I mean, realistically, you could complete that within about a six-week period, I think, even if we are looking about um, mid-summer. I think we could be guided as well by what's happened on the continent. I mean, clearly, Germany and Spain are, you know, several weeks ahead of us in terms of, you know, so the, the pandemics, you know, so scale and growth. So, you know, therefore, leagues went into the lockdown for ours. And we're told that the Bundesliga, especially, their, you know, clubs are back in training now. I think John Joe Kenny has been interviewed about uh, how strange it is, you know, so trying to exercise social distancing while training, you know, so they, they are doing that. They are actually training, just trying to keep a distance from each other. I think the view is to try and return uh, to the Bundesliga action in the middle of May behind closed doors. I think we can, you know, so observe what happens there, so see how it works. If it is, in inverted commas, a successful experiment, you know, it's something that we could carry out here. But, you know, just to reiterate, it seems a bit early still to be talking about null and voiding it. It might have to come to that, you know, so June maybe, but certainly for the time being, I think let's just sit tight, see what happens, and, you know, so plan, hopefully, to, you know, so restore football sooner rather than later. I think it did. Interesting European leagues, though, because does that create another sort of in itself? What happens under the league and do manage, let's say, to finish their season by mid July, let's say, something like that? But that's that you'd be in the Premier League with that one boy, but the Bundesliga have managed to complete their season. What happens to the likes of the Europa League, the Champions League next season? It, it's all just going to be a bit of a mess. That, that's horrific to even think of that, isn't it? Yeah, you know, so if one league manages to complete there, another does. I mean, you could have a season whereby no English clubs are allowed entry into Europe. You could have a situation whereby they take the finishing positions as they are now. It's a, yeah, it's a complete grey area, to be honest. And one that I 
Premier League officials would prefer not to investigate at the moment. I think uh, just like so, sit tight and try and plan for a season to be concluded. And all the meetings that the Premier League officials have had so far have had that as an end game. They actually said that is what they want to do. You know, so they're planning for a season to be completed eventually. I mean, as far as I'm aware, that hasn't changed yet. You know, that is still you know so the ultimate you know so end. But that can change, of course. You know, things are very, very flexible at the moment. And there's a much big picture at play at the moment. So what's going on in the world generally? Yeah, and I think that's a point that Graham was making in his piece, wasn't it, Bees? That, you know, while we all obviously care about football, we're all football fans, of course, but there is, there are just wider implications and there are more important things in the world at the minute, aren't there? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's the concern. Everyone is obviously itching to get back out there, whether that's football or just um, or life. But there's a there's an issue with if you come too soon. I mean, the sort of the, the awful ramifications that we could have with that. I think it's better to just wait and let, get things right. Like I said, whether that means it's getting behind closed doors. I don't even know what that would mean for... For best men and women, I mean, what would the media be attending? Just who would be there? Are you going to be there a couple of spaces down from your colleagues? Uh, when they talk about behind closed doors, I don't I don't know what that would, would actually entail. There's even been some bizarre shouts of playing games at Wembley or St George's Park. I think that's a bit of a far-fetched scenario. I think at least play them in the stadiums, even if you've not got the fans. But, yeah, it's all... It's all about um, just sitting tight and coming to the the, the right um, decisions um, when when the, the, when it's safe and when uh, rather than rushing back and then you know uh, you don't want anything like the health concerns if if, if we all just um, come back too soon. So yeah, it's just it's unprecedented and that's why it's so messy for something like football, which is so structured all over the calendar with the, with the season. So. Just got to sit tight, and hopefully things will work work for the best. And of course, whenever or if this season ends, of course, we've got a transfer window to contend with uh, in the summer. I think it's going to look a little bit dim this year than it had other time, but it will no doubt still be there. And uh, the transfer rumor mill hasn't stopped, and today for Everton, it has stopped quite handily on Gilfie Sigurdsson. Now, Football hmm. Insider believe that. Uh, Everton would be prepared to sell at a huge loss for uh, Gilfie Sigurdsson, obviously the club's record signing, signed in the summer of 2017. Had a fantastic campaign last season, didn't he, Breno? Joint top scorer alongside Richarlison. This season, a little bit different, hasn't it? It's been massively different, yeah, and it, it underlines really what a, a very niche position that, you know, so Gilfie Sigurdsson seems to hold in the team. I'm a fan, I've said this many times on this podcast, in fact, since new um, video that accompanies their Facebook post at the moment. It's got like this lovely little, you know, all kinds of action from the club's history. And it shows you the Skilfie Sigurdsson goal at Goodison Park. I'm not sure who it was against, but it's just lines like the, the talent that he has. It was like an effortless strike, you know, so looking one way, bending the, corner, bending the ball into the opposite corner. He's capable of doing that. He's capable of opening up defences. He's capable of creating things. Appears to be only capable of doing that playing as number 10 and you know so a, a system that accommodates a number 10 now Carlo Ancelotti clearly doesn't play with a number 10 you know so he plays you know so a more rigid 4-4-2 and it obviously has included Sigurdsson in that uh, system and it hasn't been successful you know so he hasn't appeared to be capable of uh, adapting to that system he scored very very few goals I mean it was a, a 
in the in the league cup is that his only goal this season i can't really think of many others yeah you know it's um it, it's stark really the actual contrast mm-hmm. to what we saw last season from him and what we're seeing from him this season and it does seem to be uh revolved entirely you know so the role he plays in the team he still gives everything. I mean, I know I've seen criticism from some supporters saying that he's gone missing in matches and he's been hiding in matches. I'm not so sure that's necessarily the case. I think a lot of it appears to be just the fact that he doesn't seem to fit the system particularly well. But it gives Everton a major dilemma and a major headache because uh, he's you know, reaching not quite the veteran status, but not far off it now. And he's on a huge salary. So Emerson are going to have to accept a huge reduction in, a, in the fee they paid for him just to find a football club that will actually pay the kind of wages that he will want, you know, commensurate with what he's you know, sort of getting at Emerson at the moment. It's a headache, and it's not the only one. I mean, I mean Theo Walcott is another player in a similar position, similar age, you know, or similar age levels. There's no suggestion Emerson wants to move Theo Walcott on at the moment. I mean, he does play in an area of the team that Emerson are massively blessed with options. So you can still see you know, sort of a role and a future for him. But maybe Gilfrey Sigurdsson. So I sort of guess, you know, so why the club are probably prepared to take that, you know, so major hit on him, just because he's a player that doesn't really fit into the system that the manager wants to use at the moment. So totally understand that, and it's it's sad, you know, you know, great player he is, but I totally understand why the club want to do that. Mm. I mean, Gilfrey Sigurdsson's position isn't it, it? It's not just an issue that we've had this season, of course. I think in his first season he was playing a lot from the left wing, wasn't he? And yeah. You know, I think that was because of our summer where we signed about 10 number 10s. Yeah. So he, he was pushed out onto the left wing instead. And to be honest, we've seen him move out onto the left-hand side a couple of times, even just before this break. We saw it against Arsenal and against Chelsea, I think. So you know, this this problem with Gilfie Sigurdsson's position isn't really new. So in terms of having him adapt to a new system, these, do you think? Mm-hmm. Do you think he's going to be able to do that this late in his career? Well, I've been, when I speak to um, people in his native Iceland, they tell me quite a lot. He actually plays in a four-four-two as a more conventional central midfielder for them, but he he doesn't seem to be particularly comfortable or effective in that role. And he's, he's actually struggled even in his his favoured number ten role. Like we said, that first season. Not Gilfie's fault whatsoever. He was shunted around there. He was club's record signing. Yet they'd signed Wayne Rooney and Davy Classen before he'd even come through the door. And they were trying to accommodate him out on the wing. But even under Marco Silva, even tra- playing a 4 2 3 1, which supposedly favours the, the role he wants to operate in, he, he was struggling then. And for, for me, he, he's a player of, of great moments, of spectacular highlight reel moments, like Dave mentioned, that uh, one that's been used in a in a um, club montage there. Yeah, it, it's easy on the eye and there's some fantastic goals there. And like they were last season when he was joint top scorer, it was his, I think it was his best return of his, his career. But when those goals dry up, on which they have done this season, it's very difficult to see what tangibly he's he's bringing to the team. Like as Dave said, he is a willing runner. People, the um, his fans always say that he's got these great running stats. He's, He's accused of going missing, but he's certainly not a player who doesn't put a shift in. But when those goals dry up and he isn't bringing you those highlight real moments, it is difficult to see what he's bringing. And if, if Carlo isn't going to play a, a, a formation which does accommodate him in that, that number 10, as we said, Carlo favours 4-4-2 or, or the Christmas tree, the 4-3-2-1, which he's played. Either way, there's no natural role for Sigurdsson there. So, yeah, at 30 years of age, 
it probably is going to be difficult for him to adapt to be a conventional mid central midfielder within a four four two, especially when you've got Andre Gomez beside him as as well. I mean, there's not a great deal of, of bite there. And um yeah, what, what he, he might have been able to do it for Iceland, but doing it for the Premier in the Premier League for Everton on a regular basis, that's totally different. Yeah, I think international football is so different uh, to Premier League football. Mm-hmm. You know, you do get a little bit more time on the ball, you know, so defences will sit a little bit deeper. You don't get quite that frantic hurly-burly that you tend to get in Premier League games. So you can understand him maybe having the ability to dictate games a little bit more. He's never done that in the Premier League. Like you say, we've seen isolated moments of brilliance, you know, genuine brilliance. But we've actually seen him dictate a football match. Uh, and in 4-2, you do want to see, you know, central midfielders that will control a game and that will, you know, sort of dictate uh, the momentum of a match and the pace of a match. Andre Gomez can do that. You see him doing that regularly. He's involved often to do that. Sigurdsson isn't really a player that gives and goes, that moves the ball around. He's a player that will hold the ball up and then, you know, so try and look for something to open up in front of him. You'd imagine, you know, so 4-4-2 would be better suited to him because you'd have players wide. You'd have two strikers he can aim at rather than one. But it's not worked out that way. He's not a player that fits into that system, I'm afraid. And, you know, clearly that is why. You know, so we're seeing stories like we're seeing this morning about Emerson maybe prepared to accept such a huge, you know, sort of loss. And even that's a worry, you know, because given, you know, sort of the financial situation at the club, can we really be afford to be taking 20 and 30 million hits on players? But that's not what we're going to be taking on Gilfie Sigurdsson. But you know, that would then generate, a, you know, a huge salary that, you know, can maybe be offered elsewhere. It's, uh, it's sad, it's reluctant, but it's something the club may have to, um, have to look at. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Well, I think going back to the bees just made then, I think yeah, it, it, would be, it would be unwise of us to just blame this on a positional or like a formation change for Sigurdsson because even under Marco Silva at the start of this season, there were questions over Sigurdsson. You know, Alex Obi was playing in that number 10 role and he seemed to be you know, much more comfortable in, in the way the whole team was playing. So, uh, but, and of course, Iwobi will be facing the same issue that Sigurdsson is on the mm-hmm. new Ancelot system. You know, he's an attacking midfielder who is going to have to adapt. He's probably going to have to adapt to play more of a left-wing role. Is it just, is it just an age factor, maybe, that, that, that we're seeing difference in opinion it will be in Sigurdsson or is it, is it just the fact that it will be is is more adept to being able to switch over I don't know we could argue that we've not seen nothing like the back of Alex Iwobi at the moment as well uh, mm-hmm. I know he's become kind of uh, you know sort of figure that the fans like to point the finger at at the moment you know so one of those guys that seems to be at the uh, the brunt of criticism when things go wrong uh, but certainly when he started, you know, he, he looked bright enough. He had, you know, so a handful of, you know, so quite interesting, uh, you know, performances. Um, but he's young, you know, he's got time on his side. And, you know, so, yes, you can, you know, so I hope that there will be improvements. You're not going to see much more improvement from Gilfie Sigmund, are you? You know, so I think you could argue you've seen the absolute best of him. Um, it also points a little bit towards the, uh, the club's recruitment policy. I know... Uh, it's been written in the past that the club recruited last summer based on a, a 4-3-3 system that uh, Marco Silva never actually played. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, so players were recruited to fit a system that, you know, was very, very quickly obsolete. So, you know, a little bit of a finger pointing at Marco Silva maybe there. 
but you know, Alex Roby is one for the future. Certainly, he's a player that we can see, you know, sort of more improvement from, and hopefully, we'll see more improvement from Sigurdsson, maybe not. We've certainly seen the best of him. So, it, it, it's unfortunate. But yeah, there are changes in the squad. There's something. You know, Carlo Ancelotti needs to build a squad that he's happy with and he's comfortable with. And if uh, Sigurdsson's not part of that, you know, so be it. Football's a ruthless business. Yeah, I think Brandon makes a good point there, doesn't he? Bees, you know, there's got to be. There's got to be a lot of change at Everton this summer. Obviously, we don't know how the transfer window is going to shape up, and maybe that might affect how much business Everton can do in the summer. But do you think maybe Sigurdsson is a player that you could say, we get him out, we can get at least a, a, a fee for him, and then mm-hmm. we can try and reinvest that into other areas of the pitch? Yeah, I mean, Everton were always going to take a big loss on Sigurdsson, even if he'd been a roaring success, because they said him at the age of 27. So... Whether he'd been a success or a failure, by the time you'd finished with him, you were going to get very little in return compared to that massive fee that they uh, they actually paid on him in the first place. But, yeah, I think it's going to be a, a big issue is can you get somebody to take him on maybe a lesser light, maybe, you know, if, if he wants to be you know a, a big fish in a small pond like he'd been at Swansea in the past, maybe somebody... Obviously, they're not in the Premier League anymore, but that sort of equivalent club might be willing to take um, a gamble on on a big-name player like Sigerson. But I think it is a concern just getting him out the door. It's like it's been with so many of these players who've been signed on big wages, whether it's obviously it's fair to compare him to just downright flops like Sandro Ramirez or somebody like Yannick Balassi. Or, Everton has struggled with so many of these players just to, to get them off the books. And it's going to be, like we say, whether there is a future for Theo Walcott or not, but he's similar, you know, a player on a a, a big salary wrong side of 30 now. It, 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 it's a question of how many can they offload before they bring him in because Farha Mashiri is, um, you know, he's, he's, his um, ambition for the club can't be questioned at all, but he's under huge uh, restraints with financial fair play now. I mean, Everton been linked with, you know, players like Gareth Bale, Aaron Ramsey, and it, it's, it's like fantasy football as much as you'd, you'd like to see those sort of stellar names coming in and somebody like Carlo Ancelotti arguably if anyone was going to attract them to the club it would be someone like him but you just can't go out now with a blank checkbook as it were and sign all these huge names you have got to balance the books because because of financial play they're the restraints that you've got to work under and get the likes of Sigurdsson and who else out of the door first before you can uh, rebuild that squad. Yeah, I just wonder whether, uh, you know, so an upwardly mobile championship club, you know, so I see Sigden as, uh, you know, a project we're taking on, but similar to like Derby County and Wayne Rooney. Um, obviously, he's not got the same, you know, so status or, you know, the same name in the game as Wayne Rooney has. But, you know, so equally, he's got the ability, you know, so to make a big difference into a side looking to, you know, sort of get out of the championship. Whether a championship club could afford the kind of wages he's on, though, is a, is a completely different matter altogether. And again, this comes back to the coronavirus situation. You know, football, the landscape of football is going to change quite significantly. We're already talking about, uh, you know, so players taking, you know, so pay cuts, uh, you know, clubs being forced to cut their financial costs accordingly. Whether that will leave Everton in a situation where they can't remove the player on because nobody else can afford him, or whether Everton might have to force, you know, so part of his wages to move him on. Uh, is another matter altogether. So yeah, there's there's a few factors to this, uh, but it's it's a situation that Everton it sounds you know so Everton have made a decision on, and you know the sooner it happened, well, the better for all parties concerned. Mm-hmm. I have to say, very bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll should we get the bad one out of the way first? 
and uh, we'll remember. Finish on a finish on a high. Yeah, that's yeah, that's, that, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we'll 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 get the 2012 one out the way first. Uh, Everton's second most recent FA Cup semi-final, of course. Uh, Everton and Liverpool. Things were all going so well when Jelovic put us ahead in the first half, oh. and then and then a, a couple of really costly mistakes happened in the second half. Uh, yeah, Prana, what are your what are your memories? Oh, why are you day? doing this to me? Um, <laughs> I, I, I can remember so many things about it. Um, certainly, the fact that the squads that David Moyes had to play with at that time were so in on the ground. I mean, the fact that Maggie Gay actually played, you know, that game. He had a good game in the quarterfinal at Sunderland, and uh, you know, the replay uh, played really well. But that was probably his one standout performance as an Everton winger. So to go in a semi-final really, with him starting the match on the left, you know, so it was a problem straight away. But Emerson were in better form than Liverpool at the time. Liverpool had, I think, their third-choice goalkeeper uh, in goal that day. Yeah, Brad Jones, yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, so we were very, very optimistic. And, of course, you know, so Jelovic was like you know, a striker on fire at that time. And I always remember, obviously, you know, so him scoring the goal, Liverpool making a mistake. Emerson in a half-time leading and playing particularly well. But in the second half, retreating into their shell, which seemed to be a thing, you know, so during the David Moyes era, it's almost like, um, you know, so what we have, we hold. I'm not suggesting that came from the manager. I think maybe the players themselves just, you know, found themselves in a situation whereby because they hadn't beaten Liverpool for so long, it was right, you know, so we must hold this. We must try and, you know, so sit tight on what we've got. And I always remember there was a guy who worked for the Times at the time, Tony Evans, uh, who wrote a piece earlier that day, uh, saying that, so was it a half time even? He mentioned this. He says that, you know, so he's not concerned, he's not worried, because sooner or later, Everton will remember who they are. And it, it was like a bit of a, a smart ass smart-ass kind of comment to come out with. But equally, it did underline um, the two mentalities at large at the time the fact that Everton hadn't beaten Liverpool for so long. And eventually that dawn realisation of, you know, so, wow, we're in a position where we could actually win this, suddenly, you know, so came to the forefront of the mind. And Liverpool equally would get the confidence in knowing that they always had a good spell against Everton. We just never quite expected the good spell to come the way, the, in the manner in which it came. Sylvain Distant, Lord knows, like, sort of what possessed him. But, you know, so to turn around, not look, and just roll a ball straight into, the, of all people, Luis Suarez's path. It was an absolutely tragic mistake. I still remember, you know, so his demeanour after the game, that really contrite and, you know, so really apologetic, uh, you know, sort of visage he had as he walked up to the uh, Emerson supporters. And he didn't get any flack for it. Everybody, you know, so knew it was just one of those horrendous mistakes that sometimes happens. And of course, you know, that was the turning point for Ukele. It wasn't the uh, one which, it wasn't the goal which decided the game. That was a, a corner, you know, so right at the end, which again, particularly well defended. And Andy Carroll did one of the few good things he'd done in his entire Liverpool career. It was, it was a, it was a horrible, horrible grim day. Grand National Day as well, I recall. So I managed, I remember getting out of the ground, you know, so as soon as I could and actually listening to the race on the way home. And yeah, sure enough, my horse didn't win either. So yeah, it was, <laughs> uh, it was, it was just a dreadful day all round. And uh, not one I remember with any kind of fondness whatsoever. Yeah, well, it was quite the day for the city, wasn't it? Like, I mean, that's the first all all Liverpool clash that I can remember at Wembley. Uh, that's that's me showing me age a little bit there, yeah. really, isn't it? Uh, Bees, do you have any 
different memories from, <laughs> from that one. <laughs> Today's ch- cheers all up during the lockdown. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it was it was awful from an Everton point of view in that, like I said, because the, the Derby record had been so poor for so long, this was seen in Blue's eyes as being that big chance that they would finally get one over on Liverpool and in a big game because... Not only had um, they had such a terrible derby record, going back even beyond when that poor derby record started, they'd obviously done. They'd always come up short in the big games against Liverpool for a variety of different reasons. I won't want to get Dave on that again, but um, you know, with it being cup semi-final in the past, cup finals in the past, this was going to be the one big game that Everton would. Um, would win against um, Liverpool. They, they like they said they, although they had um, a few um, selection issues going into the, the match, and we're actually team in form, finished above Liverpool that season. Obviously, Dalglish was heading for the sack that um, that season. He he, he he ended up winning the League Cup and getting to the, the FA Cup final because of that. But they they just fell off the cliff in the league. Um, they'd lost their first two choice keepers, like we said. Brad Jones was in their third choice, but he wasn't even tested despite Everton going into the lead. I've said we've said already through Jelovic who was enjoying the real purple patch at that time. Yeah, they they they, they just collapsed. They just, they just on the big occasion, whether you can point the finger at the manager or not, those various different teams under David Moyes throughout his 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 long tenure, there were various points where we thought they should have done better. For me, there was that one. The, the huge one was the, the UEFA Cup um, when Zenit St. Petersburg beat. Um, Rangers in the final in 08, I think that was seen as a huge missed opportunity. And this was this was another one. Um, you thought this is a real one for Everton to go out and achieve something, and for, for David Moyes to win that silverware, and yeah, to to, to fall flat. And for the way, like I said, the manner of the uh, defeat in that. Because remember, Everton's goal was a, was a terrible mistake, wasn't it? Jamie yeah. Carrick. So yeah. it was like it was almost like this time going well. You call that a mistake? <laughs> this is a mistake. <laughs> um, yeah, and then obviously of all people, um, Andy Carroll who was getting absolute dogs abuse from all the copites for his, his performance to come up and head in the way. Yeah, it, it had everything in terms of being like awful from an Evertonian's point of view. It just look looking at the uh, fixtures from that season now, and it just underlines again that Merseyside derby mentality that you know so Everton seemed to have, and you know so sadly currently still seems to possess. That was the only match Everton lost from mid March through to the end of the season. Mm-hmm. We were on a great run of form, you know, so it beat Swansea, Sunderland, West Brom, battered Sunderland four nil, you know, so in a league game. Then had the derby match. The very next match after the derby, basically cost Man United the title. You know, leading and drawing that game four four, battered Fulham four. Went through to the end of the season unbeaten. Just the one absolute, you know, so stark game that stands out was that derby match. And you do have to put that down probably to mental strength on the day. You know, so Liverpool had a little bit stronger mentality than Everton did, unfortunately. Right, he's off a good one. Come on, move on to the good one. Yeah. <laughs> only, Dave, only Dave remembers this one. <laughs> Everton, Southampton, 1984, 1-0. Yeah. Adrian, what a day, eh, Prenner? It, it, it was one of the most riotously celebrated Everton goals ever in, in the club's history. You know, so genuinely, it was absolutely incredible. Because uh, if you remember the the semi, you don't remember because you're forty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the, the semi-finals that year, uh, we got the dodgy draw. I mean, Southampton were a very good side at the time, 
they had uh, Peter Shilton in goal, Mills, you know, Frank Worthington, uh, lots of very, very good players. And they were a good side on a decent run of form. The other semi-final was Watford against Plymouth. Plymouth Argyle, I think, were third tier at the time. Uh, so, you know, if we have got Plymouth or Watford, we'd have been at Wembley, no problem. The fact that Drew Southampton was, well, if we can somehow get past Southampton, we've, we've got every confidence we're going to actually win the cup this year. So it was a huge game. And Everton had played, it was down at Highbury, Everton had played so well, uh, created chances, missed a couple of chances. Neville hadn't really been threatened all that much during the course of the game. But it got later and later, went into extra time. And it got, you know, so literally into the last, you know, so dying minute of extra time. I was thinking, well, it's looking at the days when they had replays for semi-final. Then. And uh, it was a free kick, I think, in the, uh, in the far corner. Peter Reid took it. And it was one of those that he clipped in. And I think Derek Manfield got a little touch on the ball at the near post. It went to the far post and it just sat up for Inchi, Adrian Heath. And he just knew that if he connected, you know, so it's going to be a goal. It's in the last minute of extra time of an FA Cup semi-final. Everton are going to Wembley against two teams that you really fancy we would beat. It was a massive moment. And he did. He guided it in beautifully. And the place just went absolutely ballistic. There was a mad pitch invasion. It took a long time for the other fans to get back to the side of the other pitch again. Saw out, uh, saw time, and there was another mad pitch invasion. I think it ended in fairly savoury scenes, to be honest, on the pitch. There was a, a fair bit of fighting going on on the pitch afterwards. Uh, but it was it was an incredible moment. And I always remember uh, the, the Daily Post, uh, the, the morning newspaper on Merseyside on Monday. And uh, I think, was it Richard Williams, who was the, uh, the photographer at the time? And he was lying on the, uh, the, uh, on the, the turf behind the goal, and you know, so as Adrian Heath scored the goal, he ran across with his arms outstretched and literally ran over Richard. And Richard just like turned his camera up and as Inchi looks down, and it's just this absolutely wonderful image of Inchi looking down with this look of absolute ecstasy's face with his arms outstretched, gazing at the camera. And it just made for like that wonderful moment. Richard will never take a better picture again in his life because everything just clicked at the right time. And, you know, so fortunately, the Daily Post used it so well. It basically painted their back page on the morning. But it was, it was just an absolutely wondrously received moment because, A, Everton were going to Wembley in the mid-80s as well. It was a time when the FA Cup final was still a massive, massive occasion. Um, you know, it, the descent of the FA Cup in terms of, you know, sort of stature and prestige hadn't quite started yet. It was still a massive competition. And so for Everson to go to Wembley, and we knew we were going to, whoever won in the other game, as it was, Dryley scored, you know, Watford won that game. But we knew we'd have every chance of winning that as well. So it was a massive, massive moment. And of course, it was only a month or so after the uh, the original, you know, so Wembley gathering of Everson and Liverpool Cup final, uh, when we won and drawn the nil. Uh, in a very, very different circumstance to the one we've just talked about. So it was, I remember that so fondly, that game. It was a, a wonderful moment, a wonderful goal. And Adrian Heath, you know, so probably one of the, saying on Sunday, because he does get credit, maybe not quite credit he deserves, you know, because the start of the following season, 84, 85, he was absolutely on fire. He was the number one, you know, sort of striker at Everton. Uh, Adrian and Andy Gray. And I'm sure I was struggling well down a place in that team. Uh, it was either of them and Adrian Heath because he was playing so well. And then obviously everyone remembers, you know, the, the bad injury he sustained in the tackle with Brian Marwood. And he was never quite the same again after that. After he was at his peak. 
and it was you know, still one of the most wonderfully celebrated goals in Everton's history. Uh, you'd be far too young to remember it, Adam. Bezo, I don't know, you probably, do you remember it as a I small boy? I, I was four years old, but Adam was a, a very small boy. Then. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for Bezo, I suppose then for us, being able to look back at this in the context of Everton's history, this mm. seems like a pivotal goal in you know the future of what was Everton's greatest ever team. Yeah, well, maybe we were obviously bemoaning the, the the lack of trophies now at Everton and lack of cup finals and stuff. And you remember, it was actually um, 16 years since Everton had been in the cup final. At that point, since 68, when they'd lost to West Brom, they were heavy favourites back in 68. They'd lost then. So 16 years in, and, a 16, and in that prevailing period, Liverpool had gone on for the first time to really dominate English football. So, yeah, I think it, it, it's shown in its context where, where people... Are watching the the Howard's Way film. It was seen as this um, really start of this great renaissance for Everton. Obviously, didn't last as as long as we would have um, hoped. But for the next few years, you know, Everton were going to be the match, and at times more than the match of um, for Liverpool. And and this is where it all starts. Mm-hmm. It's funny actually, yeah, because people always talk about turning points, and obviously in '84, everybody always looks at the Oxford back pass as being a mm-hmm. turning point because Howard Kendall's job was saved, even though Philip Carter made it patently clear you're never going to sack him. Um, some of the players in that squad talk about maybe the Birmingham City game uh, around about the same time. I think Andy Gray always, you know, sort of earmarks that one. And some people say the FA Cup tie at Stoke when Alan Irvin scored that, you know, sort of incredible, you know, sort of amazing goal to start that cup run. But one that often isn't mentioned is that FA Cup semi-final. And it was because, you know, so winning a trophy gives a squad of players such an incredible degree of self-belief and confidence. Once you've won a trophy, I think maybe you can win it. You can win more. You can do it again. And by Everton beating Southampton and getting through to Wembley against teams that a team they were comfortable or confident of beating, it was a turning point. It was a pivotal fixture in Everton's history. So yeah, you can't really underestimate how big that goal from Adrian Heath was. And you know, I love seeing it. You know, so you see it every now and then. You know, so look, look back on YouTube or it'll crop up somewhere on social media. And it was just such a, a great moment and a great afternoon. And it, it did mean a huge amount in Everton football's history. Mm. Well, fingers crossed, uh, next season, whenever that takes place, Ancelotti <laughs> will be able to find that next turning point for Everton. I think we'll leave it there on that on that uh, high point. Uh, thank you for listening to the Robo podcast. Remember, you can rate and subscribe to us on any of your podcast platforms. You can join in the conversation with us on Facebook as well at the Royal Blue podcast. Uh, thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.